This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Jonathan Lethem, author of The Arrest. Actually, a lot of what I see hurts and damages our world so much are uh, unexamined legends, myths, uh, idealizations that in some ways are very closely related to storytelling. We'll be back with Jonathan Lethem in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven plus years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft, although in the past year, it's been almost 50. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Harare and back again. We are going through monumental changes as a society right now, and as I discussed in an episode earlier this year with the writer Claire Massoud, the time for art is now. I emphatically believe this, and if you value this program, please consider becoming a contributing member by donating at www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. You can give any amount, but for just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes and cuts that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. Whether this is your first time listening or you have caught the more than 300 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. It's important to me to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics that I truly believe contribute something meaningful and diverse to our societal conversations about what it means to be alive today. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and organization more than I'd like to admit to having, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount and you know it will go to the continuation of the conversations that you've heard before and you're about to hear again on literary craft, content, and practice as well as the culture we inhabit. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Jonathan Lethem, whose works include 12 novels, five short story collections, six nonfiction books, and an array of essays published in Rolling Stone, Harper's, and The New Yorker, among others. His novel, Motherless Brooklyn, won the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Salon Book Award and was named Novel of the Year by Esquire magazine. 
Other novels he wrote include Amnesia Moon, The Fortress of Solitude, and The Feral Detective. He teaches at Pomona College and lives in Los Angeles. His new novel, The Arrest, tells the story of a world where the things we seem to rely on most stop working. Cars, guns, airplanes, computers, the internet, all cease to function. What is left is a society reinventing itself for the new conditions of existence. It feels apocalyptic, but no one living on a small rural peninsula in Maine, where the novel takes place, knows what prompted the massive change to the world. So they move forward with farming and their version of law and order. The main character, known as Journeyman, was a Hollywood screenwriter who became stuck in Maine where his sister lives when the arrest happened. He is trying to find his way in his new reality when his old friend and boss from Hollywood appears in a futuristic vehicle, unnerving the residents and tipping the fragile balance that Journeyman and his community have found post-arrest. We began with Jonathan Lethem explaining the arrest, the incident that initiated the novel's plot. The arrest is a book that names itself after a moment, a breach, a break, transformative catastrophe, probably a catastrophe of some kind. The result is that the main character, and, and he, he thinks probably everyone in the world, has simultaneously found themselves without access to the internet and even old conventional telephones that run through wires underground don't don't work and somehow at the same time gasoline doesn't work in cars so combustion engines are useless and they also uh, find that guns won't fire so a lot of the uh, most ambivalent machines that we live with that we take for granted have stopped all at once and um this is experienced as a kind of societal breakdown, just just like you'd expect. And um, of course, people want there to be an explanation, and they talk about it, and they guess, and they make um, they make claims. But nobody actually knows, uh, at least where he, this guy is, <laughs> what happened. And so um, it's it's also got a kind of enigmatic quality that people just have to live with and accept because suddenly they're in a much more localized experience of everything. There's no um, global communication. And so there's not even national communication or, you know, I mean, they they uh, are happen to be in Maine, in, in a coastal, small town in coastal Maine. And um, he's from Los Angeles. He was just visiting, but too bad for him. He's stuck there. And so guessing about what's happening elsewhere is a is a full-time occupation and guessing about why they're in this situation is a full-time occupation except you know years go by and how how interested can you remain in this problem so you just live and so no one ever really knows what what went on they just have theories or in some cases they don't even bother to have theories right it really puts that saying all politics are local into complete reality that's good. I like that. Yeah. The bumper sticker becomes everything um, because that's actually one of the most, you know, the, one of the only ways you can communicate with people is by having a sign on the outside of your your house or your or your car or, you know, you write things down. Uh, and and um, there's no more uh, Twitter and there's no more Skype and there's there aren't even emails. It's really strange to think about. Uh, some people are better at getting used to this than others. The the main character's sister is a organic farmer and lives in a you know an intentional community 
in Maine, and she takes this more or less, she shrugs it off. It's not that impressive to her. The main character himself was a screenwriter in L.A. and very dependent on um, remote communication for his romantic life, and uh, pretty much everything he, he knew has been taken away from him. So I'm curious about, you know, I'm sure you, you've been thinking about this for a while and before COVID and that you write a lot of science fiction and genre bending stuff, but what was nagging at you when you started writing this? What questions did you have that you wanted to explore? That's a great question. I think that I was daydreaming about catastrophe, which is very easy to do these days. I mean, some people are doing more than daydreaming. They're thinking and writing and working really hard on the description of our catastrophic world and, you know, the ongoing catastrophe that in some ways we're we're all subject to and participating in. Um, you know, if you're Naomi Klein, you, you have a lot of really lucid and, and penetrating thoughts about catastrophe. But if you're like me, and I think most people, what you do is you hold it at a kind of a middle distance of awareness it's too much and and then again there's there's some part of you that has an appetite for confronting the possibility that what you see around you is not a given that it's unstable and 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 precarious and that in fact other people right alongside you in history in this moment are experiencing it as falling apart you might not be just now but someone really close by is already feeling that. And that's disturbing. It's also exciting because if you feel, as I do, and I think a lot of people do, that where we are makes no sense, that the, the certainties of you know capitalism and, um, and a, a global uh, you know, uh, corporate structuring of our experience and uh, invading of our intimate lives with advertising and devices is really confusing and, and wrong, well, maybe you also yearn for not catastrophe in the worst sense, but for change that was just total, that was really, you know, forced everyone to think differently and experience things differently and remake some of the things that are being advertised as um, permanent or, or necessary, right? Like so much of our of our world just seemed certainly at least until March of this year, like, but it's just like that. You can't, you know, yes, okay, you dreamer, you can not you can have your little dream, but no, come on, it's just like this. It's going to be like this. So part of fantasizing or, or, or daydreaming about catastrophe involves maybe apprehensions and fears, but maybe also wishfulness. And I think I had all of that going on. And I think I have for a long time. I think my attraction growing up to reading... Uh, dystopian and post-apocalyptic stories uh, mingled a lot of different kinds of appetite and yearning and wondering in with fears, you know, with the kind of usual cautionary, you know, look out or it might get bad. Um, well, you know, some of that feeling is like, what? maybe it's not, maybe that wouldn't be bad. Maybe that would be interesting or better. Or I would see the people that I resent um, thrown out of their Certainties. You know, we talk about fiction being um, designed to, uh, what is it, uh, disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. And um, I'm pretty sure that I'm both the, the comfortable 
who needs disturbing and the disturbed who needs comforting at the same time. Probably most of us are, are some of both of those things. So this was a story that came out of that kind of daydream, and it instantly struck me as having a relation to stories that I, I loved a lot when I was a kid, books I read over and over again, like Earth Abides by George R. Stewart and Ridley Walker by Russell Hoban and um, Dr. Blood Money by Philip K. Dick. Uh, and, you know, other things, movies and many, many other stories, famous, famous ones that we could all th think of, you know, Brazil and 1984 and um, uh, even just, you know, uh, movies like Mad Max, you know, gasoline is a commodity. You know, it's exciting and strange. So I was I was in that space and being the overthinker that I am, I started to think also why am I feeling this way? Or what, what do these stories mean? What are they worth? And are they really um, cautionary tales or do they involve, like I said, kind of a, <laughs> a fantasy too, a, 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 a wish fulfillment element? Because this, you know, this book I wrote, at least where they're living, there are a lot of things that one might be drawn to, you know, a world where... Uh, the organic farmers are in charge. That could be okay. I might, I might want to go there. So it isn't, it isn't all bad. Let's talk about Journeyman. He is your main character. He has a few names. His real name is Alexander. His nickname is Sandy. And in this world, he's called Journeyman. And he worked with a friend of his from undergraduate school, um, Yale, Todd Baum who really rose in, in L.A. in the movie scene and not only just left him behind, but it was always in a way that Journeyman was his sidekick. He, he, he probably had the talent and the writing talent, but Todd Baum had the personality. And he comes in later, and we can talk about this, but Journey had Journeyman had been writing with him and left him and then writing with him again, and then this arrest happened when he's in Maine with his sister, and so he has to find a new thing to do. And maybe some of it is storytelling, but that doesn't really make it happen. So he becomes sort of this middleman and he helps the butcher and he delivers things. And I'm wondering about his character. And I, I towards the end, I was wondering a lot about his own agency and what he had um, as far as being certain of himself. And I'll ask you more about that later. Yeah, I think you're really on to him. He is someone who we can wish had been thinking sooner about his own agency, like much sooner, maybe decades sooner in his life before the arrest exposed so many things or you know made his perplexities, the problem of being someone like him so visible. But yeah, okay, so I'll back up, right? He's a he's a writer, maybe a hack writer, maybe has some talent, but what he lacks is the um, sense of possession of his talent. He has a facility instead of a talent, really. And he can best be employed rewriting other people's scripts. So he's that kind of guy who his name never ends up on a movie. Among producers, maybe his reputation is as a fix-it guy who if you get a, a script at the 11th hour, he can do a dialogue polish on it and make it a little better, make it 15 or 20% less bad. And he's making a really good living doing this, which is, it's a kind of deeply 
um, uh, anonymous uh, servicing kind of uh, culture work, making probably making um, forgettable movies uh, a little more charming, right? Like just enough more that the studio greenlights it and they can make the movie and you might go and buy a ticket on a Friday night and you'd have forgotten the movie by the middle of the next week, which is a success in Hollywood. The movie made money and the writer got paid. So he doesn't look, he hasn't looked very deeply at the problem of his own power because he sees himself only in relation to things and people that are much more powerful than he is. So he doesn't see himself as having agency very often. Um, and this is a characteristic form of um, American self-absolution, uh, right? Oh, I, I'm not in charge of anything. I work for people. I get along. I'm doing my best. I mean well. Um, and um, I may not be uh, a Superman or a very you know, altruistic, but I'm not doing damage, am I? So he's sort of just occupying that kind of uh, self-forgiving um, space in, in the world. And, you know, something I've figured out about myself over the years is that I write about complicity a lot. I just see the world through this um, metaphor or, or figure, let's call it just a figure of the complicit the character who's stuck alongside other things and is, you know, uh, trying to negotiate or navigate their own existence without um, being sucked into evil or, or, or becoming a victim. And I think um, Journeyman is really one of those most typical sorts of characters. He finds you know, his monstrous friend, Todd Baum, um, to be uh, kind of charismatic, kind of a horror show, a source of energy and power. And, and you know, in, in his case, a really particular, uh, he's an employer. He's, he, you know, Todd Baum has the ability to get him jobs. Um, but what he doesn't see is the ways in which he's the uh, enabler or he's a kind of a, in a way, he's like part of Todd Baum's uh, operating scheme. He's part of he's part of Todd Baum's way of moving through the world is to have someone like Journeyman attached to him. And um, this is what I'm guessing kind of snuck over you as the book progressed is that Journeyman hasn't looked at complicity very well. In Maine, there was kind of three divisions on this sort of peninsula where they were living. And each kind of area had their own culture. And there were the farmers and there were the people who seemed more normal. And then there were the, the people who were more threatening and they were around the perimeter. And you're never really certain if they're actually protecting them on the inside or keeping them on the inside, like protecting them from evil forces that might come in or the evil force themselves. And you're kind of playing with that idea and I'm curious, especially because a lot of people who listen are writers, how you construct these societies and what you wanted them each to have, and then how you you created that, if you saw it in your mind eye, if you had a map. That's a great question, too. I mean, I think that I'm really interested in, in locality and just the idea of 
what happens in a a, a boundaried zone that's part of a much larger world. And some of that comes right back to my growing up in a neighborhood in Brooklyn that I wrote about a few different times. You know, it was called Gowanus and it was called South Brooklyn. And then it got named Borum Hill by some aspirational real estate people. And the idea of the boundary and what was inside and what was outside was really fraught. When it was Gowanus, the edges were bigger and it included some housing projects. And when it turned into Borum Hill, suddenly it was smaller and it was really definitely, there was like a line drawn right at the edge of those housing projects. And this was something I thought about and was confused about and had turbulent feelings about all through my childhood. So when I transpose my experience of, you know, where do you live? Who's your neighbor? Who counts? Who's with you? What's the edge? I find that I'm bringing those New York City uh, thoughts into other spaces. And, I, you know, I did it with the desert when I wrote The Feral Detective. And here I'm doing it with the coastal towns in Maine. You know, some, some of which are based on places I'm familiar with because I spend time in Maine. But, of course, they're not inborn in me the way New York City is. So I'm, I'm also puzzling over the world of old New England farming communities and how they're being used now and how they're, you know, there are summer people who come and there are the people who are, uh, who have lived five generations in the same house. And there are the, the people who came in the sixties and seventies to start organic farms and have kind of gone native in a way, but are, so they're neither summer people, nor are they like deep uh, ancestral Mainers. And all of these things are really compelling to me. And so I thought about how they would change or how they would harden or what they would mean in this future I'd thought up in the in the um, world of the arrest. And yeah, the, the people who are forming the boundary around this sort of, you know, I guess you'd say kind of gently anarchistic couple of towns that Journeyman and his sister live in. Uh, they're called Tinderwick and East Tinderwick in the in the book. The the place where they run into something really different at the edge is much harsher, and it's a little bit like what you might fantasize like a militia, what we call a militia right now, would set up in an apocalyptic uh, world. It's like a they have a cordon, and they they check people's identity at the at the boundary, and they regulate who gets to um, who gets to come and go and and they seem to have very strict uh, hierarchical assignments in their space but the people it, that journeyman hangs out with like almost everything else they're reduced to kind of guessing about what's going on over there because they don't go inside that space they do have some dealings with them they trade food for loosely for security it's almost like a a mafia, really, that offers protection services. And you don't know whether you need protection. You know, that's the mafia game, right, in a neighborhood. You know, if you don't, if the local barber doesn't give the the mob guy uh, $25 every week, then he might get his windows broken. Well, he doesn't want his windows broken. Who is it who would break his windows? Would it be some other bad person or would it actually be somebody from the mafia? <laughs> so that's sort of the relation that these towns have to the what they call the cordon. It's sort of like, I guess we're going to pay you our protection money, in this case in the form of vegetables, 
produce um, because it keeps everything going. And we don't we don't know whether we can improve upon this or if there's someone who could overthrow this system, but we don't have the um, the aggressiveness or the weaponry or the motivation to try to push back against this arrangement. Um, anyway, what are we growing this food for? To take care of people who need to eat. So, you know, okay, we'll do this. And that's pretty much as far as their analysis has gone. So what happens is Todd Baum creates this kind of futuristic machine slash car that looks kind of like a bullet with a dome at the top that's impenetrable and it runs on nuclear energy and he has coffee and just a lot of luxuries that no one else has. And he moves across the country. It takes him a year to get there to find his old friend and his sister. And when he first comes, you have um, some lines in there and you're talking about kind of the state of the world. And one of the ones that just really struck me is that, you know, they don't know exactly what happened. They don't have connection with the rest of the world. And you say, where does a person go to a book? What do you reach for? Sandman, philosophy, psychedelics, Dostoevsky. And so you're really asking, like, how do you get through this? And I wonder if you yeah. can talk a little bit more about the line. And maybe if it were you, what would you do? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's a certain you, you, you mentioned journeyman's occupation in this post collapse environment. And, you know, part of the instigation for this book is like a kind of an ancient joke I had with myself. When, when you're a kid and you grow up, you know, my father was a painter and I wanted to make art and eventually that turned into wanting to be a, a fiction writer. One of the jokes you make about yourself, if you're apocalyptically minded and I, you know, I grew up in the, in the late cold war era, I still did, you know, duck and cover drills in, in grade school. So I did have this kind of thinking is like, what would you do? What, what, you know, so you survived world war three. Now what? And the, the, the characteristic impulse, which I experienced without it being original to me was, well, I'll be the storyteller of the fire. You know, they'll need someone to carry the myths and memories forward. And, um, that's because I can't imagine myself being useful in any other way. <laughs> so, but then the next thought, and it was one that came over me at some point was, yeah, they might not really have that much need for storytellers. Like they really need people who can like repair a tractor or, um, you know, set a really good trap for a squirrel or, you know, uh, storytelling is going to be, um, uh, cheap at, cheap at half the price. It's, it's, it's not, it's not really going to be, people are going to be a little busy and, um, impatient with people like me <laughs> when we offer our services at the end of the world. So instead, of course, like journeymen, people turn to the storyteller and say, yeah, no, what we'd like you to do is uh, clean up, you know, clean up the uh, butcher's workshop after he, uh, uh, processes all the, 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 uh, fresh killed, pigs and ducks for us. That would be good. Why don't you go over there and do this? Or you could be the one who carries things back and forth since you're not very clever about anything else. You can at least you're, you've got like working legs. You could ride a bicycle. You can, you can be our delivery guy. So journeyman's jobs extend from this joke, right? That there may not be that much use for the storyteller. But then the book, I think wants 
the, one form of questioning that arose for me in the in the book, and it has to do with my own ambivalence about. Well, you know, I said complicity before. What role have I played in making the world we are in right now? I tell stories. Is that helping? Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, a lot of what I see hurts and damages our world so much are uh, unexamined legends, myths, um, idealizations that in some ways are very closely related to storytelling. Things like the frontier hypothesis or American exceptionalism. You know, I start studying like how we got to thinking and doing and believing all the stuff that, that we are right now. And a lot of it looks like a kind of a really horrible, gigantic story that no one ever b bothered to contradict. And so um, I guess this book in some ways is saying, what if stories are worse than just useless? What if they're really part of the problem? And that's why Todd Baum, when he comes barreling back into their world, he brings with him some of the things that they've gotten rid of, and they might be a little bit relieved they've gotten rid of, like nuclear-powered engines and and you know weaponry. And um, but he also brings, in a way, he brings storytelling back in. He's he's in, he insists that everyone should listen to his big stories, and. Um, and and it's taken by this community as a kind of a disaster. Yeah, it struck me that that a lot of this book was also about storytelling. And part of that is because they were working on sort of their their white whale of a, a writing project, which is much more Todd Baum's white whale, was this film called um, Yet Another World. And it was a yeah. it was a science fiction film that they at first couldn't get right. And when Maddie was young and visiting them, that's the sister of Journeyman in L.A., she brought up some ideas that became sort of half of the story because the story took place in two worlds, like a future world and kind of a dystopian world. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed that, and Todd Baum on many levels believed what they were living was kind of the manifestation of this idea that they had put onto paper. And so I was thinking a lot about that there, that you were saying something about storytelling. Yeah. For better or worse, I have this bug in my writing and it's been there all along, which is, I think it's best explained by a word that sounds really academic, but it's easy to explain the word is meta-generic. And that is, I, you know, I find myself not only really drawn to um, classic and archetypal kinds of stories and characters, you know, the, the cowboy in the Western or, you know, the, the, the characters in a hard-boiled detective story um, or obviously, you know, versions of science fiction or, or futuristic stories about apocalyptic post-apocalyptic worlds or dystopian worlds or, you know, other things. I've written academic satire, which is very archetypal and very formal. And it's, it's you know, it's kind of classical um, literary genre, even though it doesn't have a section in the bookstore or the library uh, named for it. Everyone recognizes a academic satire when you're reading one. So I'm really drawn to these, these structures and these, um, these forms that we call genre, but I'm also really puzzled by them. And I tend to want to disassemble them or, and like try to figure out 
why they are the way they are. So that's meta generic. I write stories that are both detective stories and are kind of puzzling over what detective stories are for. I can't stop myself from doing this. And so here I've written a meta generic, you know, post collapse novel. It's about people living after uh, a disaster. And it's about me wondering why I even want to write a story like that or what stories like that do to our brains and why we are compelled to tell them. Yeah, you had um, a section at the end of a chapter. It was basically like um, words going through Journeyman's head, I think, where he was saying we lose ourselves in our stories. Yeah. That was the beginning of it. And what it made me think about as it connects to other things in the book was that Maddie, Journey's sister, journeyman's sister says to him like you're you're so absorbed in your loss like you you're so self-absorbed like you think no one else has lost anything here and I think that's really relevant too to what's going on in the world now is like we've all seen things change and we do get sort of caught up in our own little narratives that we tell about the world about ourselves and Getting out of that is really hard. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, and it's not our, it's, it's not like a, an individual failing. It's a collective, you know, we, we grow into families and, and, uh, you know, l- languages that structure self, communities, families, the idea of our nation. These things are, you know, are waiting for us. These stories are waiting to, to captivate us and sweep us up into them. I mean, if you think about paging through a childhood photo album and just thinking of all the stories that were told to you about what your your family means, what happened before you came along, how your parents met, and how you're meant to feel about it, this is how we navigate. And unstructuring them, remaking them, is violently uncomfortable. I want to get back to Todd Baum because mm-hmm. he's he's a major character. So he comes in this um, machine car that I spoke of earlier to find his old old friends. And when he comes, he's basically a huge disruption in their lives. They haven't really had any foreigners come into their little territory of these three segments of, of population on their peninsula. And he just creates a disruption. And at times, I think you aren't sure, or at least journeyman isn't sure, like what to make of him. I mean, he's, he's annoyed that he's there, but he doesn't realize, I think at first, what it does to that community. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that idea of the disruption he caused in their world. I mean, I think Todd Baum is a, you know, kind of, he's, he's pure havoc because he's, he's destructive and self-destructive. He's offensive and sometimes charming or, or at least involving kind of charismatically ridiculous. He sprinkles just enough truth in with his absolute horseshit. I think there it is. I think that's the first time I've used the words you invited me to use that you can't think straight. He floods the zone with contradictory behavior. And this is the person as catastrophe. He takes up so much space. He demands that you 
feel involved and even your attempts to extricate or or correct or compensate or fix seem in some way to be enmeshing. They're a form of complicity. Like it might be that there's no distance far enough away from him that, that you can operate and not end up somehow a part of his, you know, a part of his thing, a part of his world. And I think that, you know, maybe there are people and maybe there are nations and maybe there are institutions or even technologies that are like that for us, that we're just, you know, we end up in, in, in a boundary catastrophe with them. I saw this graphic. It was like on a sidebar on a, a website I was on. This was just the other day that had a really abstract visual component. And it was, they were just trying to sell something, some, some like, uh, I can't remember what it was, but it was just, a, it was just an attempt to sell a product, but they'd made this very abstracted graphic that had like a orange blob on the bottom and a smaller kind of uh, wavier looking yellow blob on the top. And if you got it out of the corner of your eye, it looked like Trump's head, but it was like Trump's head abstracted into wallpaper, just the orange blob and the yellow sweeping blob. And I was like, oh my God, some cognitive scientists figured out that people just click on the orange and yellow blob now and that you can just get click-throughs just because people are just conditioned, traumatized, compulsively like clicking on that orange-yellow blob. It was unmistakable that the designer had figured this out, and it caught my eye too, you know? You know, it's interesting because when I was reading about the disruption that he caused to these communities and, and the threats, like, you know, some, some wanted him killed, some wanted him out of there. There's, you know, it, there was like kind of a, a building of, of tension and near the very end, the sister journeyman, sister Maddie, he's kind of questioning, like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And she says simply, he's a ripple in the field. And when I read that line, it just really, resonated with me. And I was thinking about that someone like Todd Baum today, like before, say, post-COVID world and in the world he lived in, <laughs> yeah. just got absorbed in the randomness of how people are. And it wasn't, it d didn't create so much tension to have people like him around. It's It was like a more populous, random, you know, world. But when you're in these tight quarters and all the other rules have, have, gone away and you're on more of the edge of survival, someone like that, that ripple in the field is huge. Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, when things shrink, we can afford our, our monsters much less. And, and maybe, you know, you know, this is a book partly about the end of growth slash disruption. You know, I mean, you you and I have lived up to this point in a world that has barely even questioned the imperative of like it's always getting bigger, and you know, every disruption results in more possibilities. These are these are the stories that we had better take a look at. What can we afford to to be complicit with and live alongside? And you know, another thing this story puzzles over is, and this is already happening. It, kind of pre precedes 
Todd Baum's appearance is that it's a community that already had a problem man in it. And, you know, when you have fantasies of anarchism, I mean, a positive anarchism, a constructive, uh, beautiful, uh, humane anarchism, a Kropotkinism or whatever, and you're thinking about worlds that are based on mutual aid and barter, the first question that comes up, right, is always, but what do you do with a psychopath? Who handles them? How are they managed? Yeah. And in this book, that was journeyman. In this case, there was a man, Jerome, who was a predator of young girls, and he was castigated to live off his own. But journeyman brought him food. And I was going to ask you, because one of the things he asked for was this book called The Pillow Book of Say Shonagon, which is, I think it was written in 1000 in Japan. And she was in the court and wrote these small little segments of just her life. Yeah. And I'm wondering why that came up for you. Well, you know, interests, you know, one of the things a novel is helplessly is, is a kind of a, a journal, unless you write them, you know, like, like, um, Joyce Carol Oates in like, you know, half an hour. I don't know how the fast writers really do it. It's a process of years and they become, uh, daily, you know, companions and they become a track record of things that mean a lot to you while you're writing them. And sometimes those things become transparent or, you know, encompassed or, or reflected in the, the pages you're, you're showing what you were thinking about. And I, I had fallen in love with that book, which is a glimpse into a very, very different kind of world. And, you know, I think the relation that I began to feel that it had this, this is so, so say Shonagon, I don't know, really know how the Japanese would pronounce her name her pillow book, which is a kind of a very early literary Japanese literary artifact of enormous beauty. And it's, 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 you know, it might be described in a way as being like an auto fiction. It is written from the perspective of someone who can't go very far. She's just wondering about the world from the position of being super localized, like the characters have become in, um, in these towns in the arrest. And so that was how it resonated. But of course, it also is a book that captivates you by very gently uh, introducing you into a radically different view of societal arrangements, male and female, you know, sexual arrangements, you know, the, the world of the, the courtesans and the, and, and the, the behavior of the, the, the men in the pillow book is, it's treated as a kind of, um, with this humorous, fascination. There's no moral judgment that she's making. So one becomes very conscious as a reader of where you bring contemporary sexual ethics, let's call them, into your experience of reading what she's writing about. So I think the attraction of it for this character is maybe dubious. He's looking for ways to help himself feel better about having been a, an aberrant part of the community. I'm curious about structure um, in two ways. One is you did do short chapters, but sometimes you had these very small interludes that reminded me of maybe what you were talking about with the pillow book. Mm -hmm. And then you also have a chapter 
where you kind of stop the narrative, which doesn't mean it isn't narrative, where you you number things. So it's kind of things that Todd Bone Todd Baum told Journeyman and you list it um, right. with numbers and then you have some graphics. So I'm just wondering about sort of breaking the narrative flow and your choice about that. I think that one of the things that I've increasingly been interested in is, um, you know, giving chapters titles, sometimes numbering things within fiction. I've also published some short stories with numbered paragraphs in recent years and, um, and in these short interlude kind of, um, chapters and the, my, the novel just before this one, the feral detective had a number of these slightly prose, but I hate to claim this, but prose poetry, like kind of, or almost just landscape description, fugue sections, as if the camera in a film had drifted off to just look at the, the environment briefly and then come back to the story. And I don't think I'm inventing anything far, far from that. It's, these are familiar techniques within all kinds of eras of prose narrative. And, you know, one of the places actually that I uh, connected to this idea recently was because I was teaching uh, Melville's Moby Dick, which has all these chapters that stop to tell you things, you know, and do it in a kind of really overtly narrative breaking style. You know, like here's a bunch of stuff about the shape of a whale's head and they'll just, there'll just be a chapter that's like that. So that was one of the things that helped me, helped permit me to move more in this direction. And, you know, when you talk about like the, the inclusion of the images, I think I have always been really interested in transparency about sourcing in my fiction. I've written about this in essays and, um, found ways to kind of mention you know, cultural things that, that resonate with my, my story inside the story to actually just name them kind of like the way there's that list of post-apocalyptic and dystopian stories. And the images are kind of like the sorts of things that writers, many writers, certainly me would have pasted over their desk while they were working. Like that image just vibrates with my book and it helps me think about my book. And so the picture of the Watts Towers and the picture of the Jack Kirby drawing of a kind of a supercar. And these were things that I was just into and they were, they were connected to the book. And I started to think, why not let them be visible to the reader too? Just include them, find an excuse to get them inside the book. Of course, that sent me on a permissions chase that was a bit of a, a unexpected labor complicated thing. But I, I, I mean, I'm even sort of interested in that because of my interest in copyright and, um, fair use, uh, having to go chase down the permissions for the images, the four images that appear in the book. Um, it was sort of like a putting my money where my mouth was thing of like, okay, how, you know, filmmakers have to deal with this all the time or musicians who want to have samples in their music. Um, they have to, figure out whether they're going to clear the sample or just claim it as fair use. So here's my turn to kind of deal with that. Can you read from a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. So I picked out um, the beginning of a short story called The Southern Thruway by Julio Cortazar. Um, and um, it's a, a story about an epic traffic jam. Uh, and it, um, it sort of takes the form, like it's written like it, it is itself a traffic jam. So I'll try to read it in the spirit that it's written. It's very uh, kind of a, it's like a language pile up. The Southern Thruway. 
At first, the girl in the Dauphin had insisted on keeping track of the time, but the engineer in the Peugeot 404 didn't care anymore. Anyone could look at his watch, but it was as, the radio, as if the radio were measuring something else, the time of those who haven't made the blunder of trying to return to Paris on the Southern Thruway on a Sunday afternoon and just past Fontainebleau have had to slow down to a crawl, stop, six rows of cars on either side. Everyone knows that on Sundays, both sides of the Thruway are reserved for those returning to the capital. Start the engine, move three yards, stop, talk with the two nuns in the 2CV on the right, Look in the rearview mirror at the pale man driving the caravel. Ironically, envy the bird-like contentment of the couple in the Peugeot 203, behind the girl's Dauphin, playing with their little girl, joking and eating cheese, or suffer the exasperated outbursts of the two boys in the Simca, in front of the Peugeot 404, and even get out at the stops to explore, not wandering off too far. No one knows when the cars up front will start moving again, and you have to run run back so that those behind you won't begin their battle of horn blasts and curses, and thus move up along Taunus in front of the girl's Dauphin. She is still watching the time, and exchange a few discouraged or mocking words with the two men traveling with a little blonde boy, whose great joy at this particular moment is running his toy car over the seats and the rear ledge of the Taunus, or to dare and move up just a bit, since it doesn't seem the cars up ahead will budge very soon, and observe with some pity the elderly couple in the ID Citroën that looks like a big purple bathtub with a little old man and woman swimming around inside. He resting his arms on the wheel with an air of resigned fatigue, resigned fatigue, she nibbling on an apple, fastidious rather than hungry. Do you want to share why you chose that? (laughs) Well, Cortazar was uh, someone who just blew my mind when I was a teenager and I discovered his writing. And, um, you know, I mean, he, he, he fits in the kind of the, uh, schematic I was offering, which I, which I maybe is, is very, uh, overdetermined, but where I began to see connections between American or English language science fiction writing that had been published, relegated to genre publishing, like at the time, J.G. Ballard and Le Guin and Thomas Dish and, and Samuel Delaney and Philip K. Dick, and these international, 20th century international kind of writers of the fantastic, like Kobo Abe in Japan, or Annika Van, or, or um, you know, Stanislaw Lem in Poland, and, and in this case, Julio Cortazar, who was an Argentinian writer, although he lived in uh, kind of a glorious exile in, in Paris for much of his life. And so this story, is, as with a number of his great works, uh, including the, the novel Hopscotch, are set in Paris. Um, and this car pileup, you know, it reminded me of like the kind of idea that Robert Sheckley or, or, or Frederick Pohl, you know, science fiction writers of the 1950s um, who, who wrote in a certain style that was associated with a magazine called Galaxy Magazine. You know, they were basically social satirical science fiction writers. And it was at the time, it was probably of a piece with a lot of Cold War art things like Twilight Zone, television show, or, you know, darkly satirical monologues of a comedian like Lenny Bruce, um, or, you know, even an apocalyptic song like someone like Bob Dylan was going to write within a couple of years, like A Hard Rain's Going to Fall. I felt like Cortazar was describing this futuristic nightmare world, 
where cars stop moving and everyone is just living in them. And, um, and he's, he's, he's just such a great writer. The, the energy, the, the, the liveliness in the, in the language and his, his voice is really, um, unmistakable. It's one of my, one of my life companions. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or change from the first draft. Well, yeah. So I was thinking that, um, I could read, there's a, Early on, um, The Arrest was a longer book in some ways. Not a lot longer, but it was longer. And it was written in the first person. And so it was Journeyman was telling you the story instead of being described in the third person. And um, and he was much, much wordier than I was. <laughs> I'm going to blame it on him. Um, so the first version of a lot of this book was much kind of fancier and, 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 and more digressive even than, you know, I probably can be accused still of being, um, prone to digression. But, um, so this is a version of, um, of a chapter that's in the book. It's, it's intact in the book where, uh, where you're learning about the arrest, but you're learning about how, Nobody really understands what happened when the arrest happened. But this is in first person, and this is um, Journeyman uh, talking about it from his point of view, which, as I said, is was much, much fancier than the voice I eventually settled on. Um, without warning except every warning possible, it had come, the arrest, suddenly and in increments, parcels, Microdoses to which we'd been too delirious to attend, the collapse and partition and relocalization of everything. The future, that is, announced itself. The future, always already present, only distributed unequally, like everything else, like bread, talent, sex, like peepal, neem, aloe, gerbera, and those other plants that give off oxygen at night, like the rare spotosol fervent soil for which my sister's farming collective was named. We stranded at last on the shore of the always arriving wave. Let B be finale of seam. The arrest produced itself as a now already past, like a time capsule unearthed, one bigger on the inside than the outside, a time capsule into which we'd all climbed. Be patient with me. I am trying to describe things I don't understand. Who'd say when it started? The question was when it gained your attention. Plenty flew under the radar. Biodiversity halved? That hadn't made a huge impression. Polar ice and refugees? Too big to take personally. One day we, you and I anyway, noticed reports of a new tick-borne disease. This one a novelty, like that asparagus ice cream you'd long ago sampled at the fair. Once bitten, your new superpower was that cow, was that cow meat made your throat close up. No more American Wagyu tomahawk steak for two, black on the outside, red within. It made a fine thing to reminisce over, over mung bean sprouts or roadkill. You joked, were the new ticks an eco-terrorist hack? Had those bent on saving us no more regard for our privacy, autonomy, comfort in worn personal routine, or hot internet dates than the ones bent on destroying us? Had they ever? Someone went on television and told us that the turning point had been when, in 1975, the president had worn a sweater on television and proposed solar panels on the White House and been ignored. For counterpoint, another someone then told us that the turning point had been when St. Paul's epistle had been delivered to the Romans and ignored. 
we weren't subject to many further such debates. Such debates were to suffer a mercy killing. It was at this moment that the arrest drew your attention, wasn't it, darling? Be honest. You, your friends, like mine, sat up and noticed the death of screens. The screens, they died not all at once, but in droves. Like the 6,000 avian flu victims in Irkutsk and Ghana, like the hundreds of manatees washing ashore the same day in Boca Grande, which you found somehow uncompelling, deleted from your feed. You unfriended the manatees. No hard feelings. I did too. So you explained a little about this, but do you want to say anything else? Sure. I mean, it was it's just so elaborate. And uh, the book was addressed. It wasn't only that it was in first person um, uh, by Journeyman, but it was it was pretending to be a manuscript that was kind of a, a long letter to someone and, and who was being regularly addressed in the story. And, and so there was this extra whole extra complicating layer uh, in the book, in a sense, where you might be wondering who is he talking to? Who's his darling? Who's who's being? Who's he trying to persuade? <laughs> basically, of his point of view, and um, a, only a tiny, tiny little residue of that plan made sense to to keep alive in the book. Um, I mean, the answer was uh, the woman in the library. You've read the book, so you know who I'm talking about. Um, was his was his darling? But in this uh, earlier draft. She was, they were further along in their relationship by the end of the book, and she asked him to explain everything in a, in a story. And so the arrest was, was Journeyman's own account. Where do you write? Well, um, mostly I write uh, on my treadmill desk, and I trudge while I write. I'm, I'm like... Um, a person going nowhere fast or slow, not even fast. I'm going nowhere slow. Uh, and um, sometimes I write at the kitchen table and sometimes I write in my um, college office and sometimes I write at a cafe. I, I have a, a laptop and I move around pretty readily. So it's good sometimes to just br break it up, surprise myself. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, these days, uh, uh, the, the desert, I, I live kind of on the, on the, at the door of the Joshua tree and, and, and the, the 29 Palms desert. And I really like escaping that in that direction. So east, east of here. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It changes. Um, there's almost always been a different first reader that made sense. And, um, and I, I like, I like wondering, I like not knowing who I'm going to give it to. How have you dealt with rejection? I, you know, took it on the chin like everyone. <laughs> and, uh, when I, when, when there was nothing but that's when it's the hardest. And I sent stories and novels out for a good seven or eight years before I was really getting anything much in the way of encouragement, but, um, but eventually, you know, um, if you're not too sulky, you, you start to notice how fortunate you are to have anyone care at all. And I do, I have been fortunate that way. So, you know, the books aren't for everyone. They can't be for everyone, but I, 
I'm allowed to publish them. <laughs> and some people really are glad that I do. And that, uh, that keeps me going. I focus on the, when I was a kid, there was a song on this Burl Ives record that I liked where he would sing, um, as you go through life, make this your goal. Watch the donut, not the whole. And what is your favorite word? Squalor. Thank you so much for your time. I'm really appreciative and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Great. It was really fun talking. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Jonathan Lethem, author of The Arrest. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Emily St. John, where we discussed her dystopian novel, Station Eleven. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send a huge thank you out to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.